A special thank you to Gabriel Laycock. The global pandemic has hit our day jobs hard. This is now our full-time jobs. If you want great content and can afford a few extra bucks, consider becoming a Southpaw supporter on Patreon. If you want to show everyone else your solidarity, we now have an online store full of Southpaw swag. You can find links to both our store and our Patreon at southpawpod.com. When it comes to left media, we cannot exist without your support. This is Sam. This is Tyler. And this is Southpaw. Today on Southpaw, we have Tyler Zinn. Tyler is the lead instructor for the Rainbow Connection Self-Defense Program at Tucson's Rising Phoenix in Arizona. Along with martial arts and fitness, Tyler also comes from the world of behavioral health and was a trainer for the LGBTQ Behavioral Health Coalition of Southern Arizona and still provides LGBTQ 101 and trans 101 along with other trainings in professional and community settings. Hi, Tyler. Hi. So I've been having a series of chats with different inclusive gyms. Now you do inclusive teacher training. So I wanted to have you on for us to think about how we can not only build a more inclusive gym, but also a more inclusive training environment. Sure. Now, even though this is meant for self-defense and martial arts gyms, there will be a lot of crossover that will apply to all gyms. I'd say 99% of it, actually 99% of this is just about being a better person. So it's also a good primer on allyship. So everyone listen to this app, listen to it more than once, share it, use it as a resource. Now to start, something that is a fixture of every gym I've chatted with thus far are names and pronouns at the beginning of class. Can you go into this? Because most places don't even do the names part, let alone the pronouns. Sure. So names and pronouns are done consistently in my LGBTQ plus specific self-defense class. And in the other classes for the regular membership, it's starting to be used, especially when we have newcomers. The idea is that if we want to be able to interact with each other respectfully, we need to know how to refer to each other. So I'll start class with, let's begin with our names and pronouns. My name is Tyler and my pronouns are they, them, their. Um, so, and then we just go around the room and have everyone do that. Um, my LGBTQ plus specific classes are especially community oriented. And so, whereas in the regular classes, it may not always be, um, you know, it may not be the practice to do names at the beginning of class. Um, I really want our LGBTQ specific class to have that sense of community, of knowing each other, of standing together and and coming out of class feeling less alone. So, you know, that's kind of why I wanted to do introductions in the first place. But it's really important that cisgender, or which means non-transgender instructors understand that we can't assume our students' gender. 
And it's also important that they see that singling out transgender students or putting the onus on students to have to correct their instructors about their pronouns isn't really fair to students and that we need to model giving our pronouns. So whether or not we're transgender, we we all give our pronouns. This also models that behavior for students that may not have experienced it before so that they're aware of that aspect of respecting our training partners. And so um, that's why it's starting to be used more in their regular classes. My instructor, the, the owner of the gym, wants to um, make sure that people are all on the same page about this being a very LGBTQ inclusive gym. And this is one of the ways that we can do that is getting level setting everyone with names and pronouns. So ultimately, it almost sounds like respecting everybody's personhood, which sounds obvious, but maybe not, right? Yeah, no, exactly. Can you tell us about the concept of modeling of respect a little bit more? Yeah. So as coaches and trainers, we're we're respected ourselves and we're seen as authority figures, especially in martial arts. I think um, that's kind of the perception of, of coaches, trainers, instructors, which I, I'm going to use interchangeably. Um, to me, the most vital thing that we can do to ensure that our gym is a respectful place is to model that respect to our students. We're, we're really in the position to make change not only in how our students treat each other in the gym, but in how they treat other people they meet outside of the gym. And so, you know, for example, if we as trainers and coaches used ableist language, then ableism is seen as a pr- an accepted practice in our gym. And we don't want that. We want this to be a place where all of the students can come in and feel um, that they're going to be respected and ultimately that they're going to be safe. And can you explain a little bit about what ableism is? So ableism is discrimination, um, negative feelings, and um, bigotry towards people that have disabilities. And tell us about the concept of wolves at a sheep party. Sure. So it's a metaphor. It's all about making a safe space for marginalized folks. So the idea is if you invite wolves and sheep to a party, only wolves are going to show up because the sheep would be eaten. They're not going to come. <laughs> they, they don't want to be there. You know, That's not a safe place for them. So the idea is if you allow predatory people and bigots at your gym, along with marginalized people, soon you're only going to have the bigots. You, the others are going to leave because they don't want to be victimized. I suspect this happens in a lot of gyms. Um, our gym owner has always had a policy of not out allowing certain kind of personalities in the gym, like the folks that maybe are going to be more likely to do that. And so we have really great people who are willing to learn and be respectful and be safe people to each other. And so, you know, we, we don't allow the wolves. This reminds me of a previous episode I did about forums and message boards and Facebook groups and about radical centrism, how if you have this kind of idea that we're going to allow all kinds of people there, what you'll soon find is that all those other types of people will disappear and only the worst, most racist, awful people will be the only ones remaining. So even though the intent is like, oh, we're going to mix a little bit of this and mix a little bit of that, it's almost like ice cream and poop. (laughs) After a while, the whole thing turns into poop. Yes. Now, how should we as trainers and instructors receive feedback and how do we create space for feedback? 
So in my training, I talk about calling out and calling in and how instructors um, should receive feedback when they do or say something that's problematic that they just didn't realize. Um, So just to kind of define those, calling out is when someone, usually someone that's targeted by a behavior or part of the group that the behavior harms, tells the person what they did wrong. And maybe somewhat public and in the moment, it might involve really expressing the emotions that the behavior caused. So you said this, it really hurt my feelings because of this. Um, Calling in is a more private, intentional act that can be done when someone perhaps isn't as emotionally affected or isn't part of the group that was harmed by the behavior. It could be pulling someone aside. I've done it by texting someone after class because they knew they would be receptive and and it was something that could be heard um, later on and absorbed and brought back into um, practice at the gym. So what I teach um, for instructors is what both of those things are and that both of those are valid ways of a member of the gym, a student telling us that we've done something wrong. The onus is on the instructor to receive the feedback well. The reason for this is that the first time an instructor responds defensively to being called out, we've lost trust and we've lost a way of getting feedback and we've potentially lost that student. Um, we've certainly potentially lost their friends who who may might have come in otherwise. So calling someone out or in requires a lot of courage and it doesn't take much to make someone go, well, I'm never going to try that again because they responded so poorly. Um, So what I teach is that if someone's willing to call you out or in, it's a sign that they respect you enough to believe that you'll listen and that they care about training in our gym enough to tell us this is something that I've seen that I think should be changed rather than just leaving or talking negatively about us. Um, when we don't know about it, they want to they want to maintain a positive relationship with us, and I think that's a very different way of thinking about receiving criticism than many people have. What about the martial arts idea of the beginner's mind, or this idea of continuous learning when applies to teachers? For students, it means being constantly open to new techniques, right? Like being receptive to a new way of doing something. But what about for teachers? In training, I bring up this idea of we're in a learning institution, partly to avoid the mentality that some people can have of, I'm too old to learn about these new pronouns, or, (laughs) you know, I'm set in my ways. I've literally heard when I tell people about my pronouns, I'm, you know, I'm just so old, I can't learn about that. And Um, and so saying, well, okay, we're standing in a gym where we're standing in a learning institution where we're all here to learn new things, um, as instructors, you know, and coming at it from the perspective of knowing the instructors that that I work with and being able to say, I know you're here to learn. I know we all are. And we're also, um, because we're teaching self-defense, we're teaching things that can be uncomfortable to our students. So if, if we can, teach our students to sit with some discomfort and try to push themselves to a new understanding, then we can do the same thing. Teaching about inclusion, it's important because being inclusive as an institution means being a learning institution and never assuming that we have it all figured out. Um, We need to always be open to feedback and to trying new ways of doing things. So we need instructors to have that mindset. Now, what about something that is way too commonplace in all gyms? Stigmatization of mental illness. And this might even connect to what we were previously defining with ableism. Mm -hmm. So 
how do we not only avoid this pitfall, but make sure we don't buy into these stigmas as fixtures of reality and recognize them as biases? So media has a huge effect on how we view mental illness, and it causes a lot of really harmful misconceptions about people that have a mental di- mental health diagnosis. So it's really important that as people that want to be protectors of our community, which I think a lot of people in martial arts do, and especially at a in a self-defense oriented gym like I attend, um, we realize that people with mental illness are far more likely to be the victims of violence than the perpetrators. Um, the stigma that mentally ill people are violent causes people to be less likely to talk about their mental health, less likely to seek help, less more likely to be discriminated against and harmed. Um, another aspect of the lack of understanding of mental health is that people can just get over it if they think positive or if they work out, et cetera. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, and these my my gym particularly bills us as being able to help people with depression and anxiety and other conditions. So it's really important that we're aware that folks may have encountered that kind of thinking and that we not perpetuate that kind of thinking. A failing of martial arts is to cast homeless or people with substance issues as likely victimizers when more often than not, they're the likely victims. It's a form of victim blaming, which should be obvious, but it's not. So what are some of the facts we should be aware of? So there was a study done in 2010. It showed that depending on the region, people who are homeless had a criminal victimization rate of 34 to 89% compared to the general population that is housed at 1.2%. So, you know, People who are homeless are just so incredibly vulnerable as a population, especially when you start to couple in substance use and mental illness, which are both also factors in people being more vulnerable to being abused or victimized in various ways. Um, Our gym has started doing some outreach to homeless people in the community with the idea that as protectors of our community, we should be protecting the people that need it most. So handing things out to them, checking in with them, just saying, how are you doing? Um, it hasn't always been this way in in our gym, but we now stay away from implying that homeless people and people with mental illness are, um, potential perpetrators of violence. Not that they could never be, of course, anyone could be, but that, um, that's not likely to be the person that you're going to be defending yourself from. Right now we're in the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic. And I was talking to a friend who was saying some stuff that was kind of out of character. And I I understand that this person is driven by fear, but it's something I've seen way too often and probably you've seen often in the martial arts, this type of assessing the wrong threat mentality. So they were saying that homeless people and actually also people who might have substance abuse issues or people who have mental illness, this person actually called them a vector where they're going to be the spreaders of the disease. And they they were saying this. And to your point about the facts that you just laid out, this person perpetrating this type of rhetoric, you already covered how the homeless are most likely the ones to be victims of violence. Mm -hmm. Then this person saying that is only going to create more of an environment for people to be even more hostile to the homeless. So yeah, I 100% agree. I think a lot of it comes from personal disgust. That's for Freud to figure out. But but sometimes (laughs) people If they find something to be repugnant to them, then they want to blame everything on that. And uh, that's just not the case. 
Yeah. And, you know, I think where a lot of our, our, um, beliefs about people who are homeless come from is partly the capitalist society we live in saying, if you put in the effort, you'll have everything you need. So these people are clearly not putting in the effort, which is just not true. We know that's not the case, but also it has to do with victim blaming because victim blaming is really all about saying, I won't be a victim if that person is at fault for what happened to them, because I will do things differently. And so we see homeless people and we think, well, they must have done something to quote unquote deserve it or um, to be in that position. Because if it's that easy to become homeless, then I could become homeless too. And that's too scary for me to cope with. So they must have done something wrong. And if they've done something wrong, then I can feel negatively toward them. And what's really kind of fascinating to watch as people are holding on to this type of mistaken belief, even though this person, me, a lot of people are not working right now because of this pandemic. So we're all just like two bill cycles away from being homeless as well. So absolutely. So what are you saying that you will become like that automatically? Or is it more like there's a lot of homeless people who are just regular people like us who just had bad luck? Exactly. That, that just had, you know, one injury, one illness. Um, we know that that, especially in America, we don't have um, required sick pay and sick leave and things like that. It doesn't take much at all for someone to be put in the position where they end up homeless just because they ha- they have a little bit worse run of luck than than we're having at the per- at the particular moment we're talking about. Medical reasons that medical bills is a huge one too. Mm-hmm. Yep. What about martial arts or even regular gyms, their ability to help in mental health, but also the overpromise of what it can achieve? You've already touched upon this, but can you elaborate a little bit more? Sure. So it's a huge misconception about mental health that it can be cured through working out or through the com- combination of working out and the self-esteem boost that many people get from doing martial arts. Um, I mean, we feel the same way about physical health too, that, you know, people just get out there and move, they're going to be cured of all of these (laughs) diseases that that's just not how it works. It saved my life. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Kale and yoga, you know, is, (laughs) is kind of the, (laughs) the thing. And people feel the same way about mental health that you eat, right. You go out and work out and you're going to be, uh, um, you're going to be fine. The reality is that for most people, a combination of therapeutic treatments is the most effective treatment for depression and anxiety and other diagnoses too. So we believe martial arts and self-defense training is part of the answer, not the end all of treatment. Some people definitely can control their diagnoses through exercise. There are definitely people out there for that, whom that's the case. But if you take someone that needs to be taking medication or in talk therapy or both or on other treatments, um, and you tell them this is going to cure all of this for you, you're, you're putting them in a very dangerous position potentially. Um, we decided as we wanted to become a gym that people come to to treat their, to help treat their mental health, their depression and their anxiety that we're not the doctors, we're not the treatment coordinators for these people. And it's not up to us to tell people what they do and don't need. Um, we're going to alienate people. We're going to direct them to do something that's really not going to be good for them if we stigmatize the use of medications or make it sound like we can provide a cure. 
something else that gym cultures are slowly starting to become more aware of and sensitive to are eating disorders. Can you speak to us about why that's important and how we can avoid just making things worse? And maybe this also relates to everything we've been just talking about as far as mental health stigma. Yeah, we we definitely have really incorrect ideas about what eating disorders look like in a person. Um, I think we think we can know by looking at someone that they have an eating disorder. Um, and we also just think that it's very rare and it's a, not, a lot less rare than people are aware of. So there are more eating disorders than just anorexia and bulimia. There's many ways that eating disorders present themselves. I believe, and I haven't seen a study on this, but I believe that gyms are more likely to have people with eating disorders than the general prevalence in the population because excessive exercise is often part of the disorder. So since you can't tell by looking at someone whether or not they have an eating disorder, it can occur for people at any size, it's really important that we're sensitive to making statements and promoting ideas that could be a trigger for someone that either has an active eating disorder or is in recovery for an eating disorder. And so some of the things that our instructors have been taught to avoid, and this goes back to instructors modeling respect, are statements about dieting in general calling foods good and bad or attaching moral value to foods, I think is a huge one um, that we're not aware of um, that we do, that we say, oh, I ate some um, some cookies that, that was, you know, this is a bad food or I was bad for eating that food. And then just commenting on weight loss in general. And we talk about how people will have folks comment on their weight loss or gain, and it turns out that it's due to cancer or depression or grief. I've heard all of those stories. Um, And so we basically don't um, comment on weight loss for people unless we really explicitly know that that was their goal and they're, they're looking to us for feedback. So then how should we talk about fitness and nutrition? So as instructors, we need to be encouraging the actual goals goals that our students have. So we need to, if we're commenting on something related to goals with fitness and nutrition, it should be the goals that the students actually are working towards. For some students, that's a goal of coming to the gym twice a week, up from zero or once a week, or their goal is to build muscle or to be able to do 20 burpees. Um, in the case of a martial arts gym or especially um, a self-defense oriented gym, It's often just to learn how to defend themselves. That's what I went into it for. It had nothing to do with fitness. and Or their goal may be to eat more protein or to eat more fruits and vegetables. So those student-specific goals are what we should be encouraging and helping students to set. Assuming what someone's goal is isn't helpful and can be really damaging to them. Going into that then, tell us about trauma and things we should know. So trauma really fundamentally changes the way that our brain works. And if you're young, when trauma occurs, it even can change the the structure of your brain. Um, I think that's a really important thing for instructors to know because it can make that more real for them, that people can't always just get over it when something bad happens to them. Um, So there are a few things that I recommend avoiding when someone brings up a trauma. One is that um, any sort of not believing survivors is really, really detrimental. So believing survivors when they say this happened to me is absolutely vital. 
I think it's really, we have a knee-jerk reaction to question what happened to someone and just going back into the victim blaming we were talking about. Um, we have a reaction to blame the person in some way or to try to figure out what they could have done differently. It's the stereotypical, what were you wearing? Were you alone? Kinds of questions. So any thoughts you have when you hear about someone's trauma that maybe it wasn't as bad as they say or that couldn't have happened or that person couldn't have done it should really be kept to ourselves and talked through with other people later. It's not something we should talk through with the person, with the survivor. So questioning the trauma survivor about what happened, um, what they were doing at the time, how it happened to them isn't appropriate. And it usually only serves us and calls them to question themselves and their own actions. I think it's also really important to know how um, that trauma is much more prevalent than we realize, especially childhood trauma. And so, especially if you look at folks coming in for self-defense, it's probably going to be more likely that you're running into folks with trauma. And something you mentioned earlier a couple of times are things that we just say without even thinking about it because it's just automatic reflex, especially for a lot of not just teachers, but even as friends, we might just say stuff like get over it or just be positive or something even like man up. And you said that could be very damaging. Can you explain why that is so damaging? So I think when people are struggling th through trauma or mental illness or anything like that, they, we often don't give people credit for doing everything that they can. And again, we, we believe there could be something more that they're doing, that there's some sort of control over it, that they have more than what they actually have. And so questioning people uh, when they're already questioning themselves because society questions us about you know what we could have done differently or why we have um, the struggles that we have can really cause someone to um, to spiral or to feel a lot of extra guilt that they shouldn't be feeling about something that really isn't their fault. So it's kind of like what you were saying about with the homeless or substance abuse or mental illness. It's all this language of that it's all self-inflicted. You did it to yourself. And so you could choose your way into it. You could choose your way out of it as if they haven't already tried everything. Right. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. So then can you tell us about the halo effect in this context? So the halo effect is, it's actually a type of bias where our initial or our ongoing impression of a person that they're really nice. Oh, they're such a great parent. They're a Boy Scout troop leader. You know, they it colors our view of the person as a whole and what they're capable of. So it's very common when someone discloses sexual harassment or assault that the person they disclose to goes, oh, but they're so nice. Or, oh, they did this, you know, nice thing for me. They're, they're such a great community member. Um, so even if you initially have a hard time believing the accusation, we teach instructors Keep that to yourself. Um, it doesn't matter how close you are to that person. doesn't matter if it's a fellow instructor. Um, you need to kind of talk through your, your feelings about it later with other people, not with the person making the accusation. And especially if it is a fellow instructor, this should be brought to your lead instructor um, and taken seriously. And I always make sure to um, to let instructors know, and I want to make sure I let 
folks know here too and talking about it that it's really important to keep the person's confidence if at all possible unless there's an immediate safety issue or something that needs to be taken care of so you know you don't want to go around telling everyone what you've had disclosed to you yeah along with the biases that you just mentioned that go along with halo effect i would even say sometimes people have this weird thing actually way too many people where they don't want to believe you about somebody who did something if that person is educated. Oh, but that person's so educated. How could they have sexually harassed somebody, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, they come from upper class upbringing. They're from that side of town. They would never do something like that. So sometimes it's not even based around niceness, but it's about our weird class bias and education bias that we think people who are higher up on the social ladder are incapable of being bad. Yeah, I agree. That's very true. Talk to us about then consent and body self-ownership. So especially when it comes to, again, martial arts folks that could be coming from a, a trauma background, we really need to, if we're talking about self-defense, if we're talking about people learning to be able to physically defend themselves, we need to model setting and enforcing boundaries around our bodies and our time and our hearts and and what we choose to give our attention to, to our students, if we're going to effectively teach real self-defense. Um, and self-defense traditionally is taught to defend against strangers. Um, but we know that most attacks are by someone we know, and that they often involve someone starting by seeing how far they can push our boundaries. So students should be taught, I believe, that to discuss with their training partner what they are and aren't comfortable with. Um, we we tell our students, get consent before you start. So if we're practicing a choke, say, is it okay if I put my hands on you? Um, and as instructors, when we're demoing in front of the class, the the techniques we're doing, we actually model that even even though we know each other well enough to know that it's going to be okay, we say, is it okay if I put my hands on you so that the students can see that. Um, and when students aren't comfortable, it's really important that we're ready as instructors to give alternatives so that they can interact with the technique in a way that feels comfortable for them if possible. So for example, when it comes to a choke, we might say, is it okay if I lay my hands on your shoulders instead? And we can pretty much go through the same technique um, that way. You know, for some people, it takes a lot of time to be ready for certain techniques and that's okay. We we can't get so caught up in results that we lose sight of the importance of folks owning their bodies and being able to decide what to do with them. Yeah, we want the result of people being able to defend themselves. But if you're so obsessed with that result, you might damage people along the way, and then you might create more damage than you're preventing, right? Exactly. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you'll help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod.
Now, what should we consider in regards to peer pressure and duress? So I think it's along the same lines. And what you said, if we force students to do things or pressure them, we're potentially re-victimizing them. Or we're authority figures, we're where people that we, you know, that they want to respect, we're making them more likely to give in to attempts to push their boundaries in the future because we pushed their boundaries and we didn't respect their boundaries. So if you look at what we're trying to teach, if we are pushing our students to do things that um, they're not ready for, then we're setting them up potentially for not really being able to um, use the techniques that we're teaching them in the future because someone that I trusted pushed me and so it's okay to be pushed. So a lot of this about modeling is about not to perpetrate or not to continue enforcing a cycle of abuse. Exactly. Yeah, well, we can't be effective instructors if we're if we're acting out the behaviors of um, an abuser or uh, a person that's trying to take advantage of someone. And I think, unfortunately, that happens all too often in self-defense classes. Acting out the abuse that you're trying to prevent. It's a weird irony, right? Mm-hmm, exactly. What about the setting and the environment, such as noises and lights, not just for people who have trauma, but also for people who are not neurotypical. So sensory information like bright lights and loud sounds or music can be quite intense. So what should we consider here? It's really important that we think about how we are setting our environment. So when you look at trauma-informed care as a, a healthcare concept, one of the big things that trauma-informed care teaches is how to set the environments of offices and lobbies um, to be as friendly as they can be to people that have experienced trauma. And so there's a lot of things that we do in self-defense training that can be um, startling or scary to folks. So one of the things that we do in, in our classes is we um, will do techniques with a strobe light and to kind of simulate um, a party scene or just a disorienting um, environment. And so, you, you know, mentioning to the class, I've seen it done before as kind of a surprise, like, uh, you go ahead and do your techniques and, and a surprise is coming and that's just not safe for, for many reasons. It, it could cause someone to have a flashback. It could um, cause someone to have a seizure. Uh, we Similarly, we do um, a loud noise to trigger um, kind of uh, learning how to turn a fear response into um, an action that can be uh, defensive and we warn folks in advance we're going to be making a loud noise so that students have the opportunity to opt out if they don't want to do that. And and similarly, we have um, we have drills where folks are supposed to close their eyes. Same thing, you know, if folks don't feel comfortable closing their eyes because that's scary for them, they're given the option not to do that. Now, what about something like loud music, which seems so ubiquitous now where people don't think about it? You could walk into a spin class or even now martial arts classes like years ago when I first started, like 20 years ago, you never played music at the dojo, whereas now it's kind of commonplace. But now 
speaking to more people who are trying to do inclusive training, I've thought about something that we just did as an automatic, how it could be startling for people who might have trauma and also people who might be on the spectrum and that type of loud music can be very disorienting. So what should we consider there? Yeah, so I think one one thing is offering um, options for folks that maybe can't even be in a group setting, for example. So uh, we offer individual sessions and we'll turn off the music and, you know, give the person our full attention and set the environment. Um, maybe set the individual session at a time that um, not a lot of other stuff is going on in class. But I think communicating with your students and you can't always... Um, it may be music, it may be the way the lights are set. You can't always predict and ask every question about what could be triggering. And so being that that instructor that's open to feedback and open to folks saying, hey, you know, this is something that would be really helpful if I'm going to be taking your classes um, is something that we need to set up for folks that they feel comfortable telling us that. Justin, speaking with you right now, I just realized how then so much of the fitness industry itself, classes especially, are just not friendly and inviting for a lot of people because they are so intense and they're meant to be intense, almost like you're supposed to come here and lose your mind, right? It looks like a club, bright lights, loud music, intense, everybody screaming, all this stuff. And it's like, who is this for then? You're creating an environment where this isn't for a lot of people and you don't want it to be for a lot of people. And I think that in itself... I think it's just very problematic about gyms and fitness in general, that it is by design, not meant to be friendly. Yes. And, and one of the things that I do in training is have people critically think about how our gym is and isn't accessible and not necessarily, like you said, not necessarily ask for answers to it, but to be able to accept there are people that are never going to be able to benefit from all of the things that we feel like we have to offer to the community because we're not set up that way or our building isn't set up that way or, you know, because we have um, loud music and a lot going on and it's too overwhelming for some folks. So I think, I think it's really important to try to figure out ways to be more accessible. And I think it's also important to just be able to go, we're not accessible in this way. And we need to realize that that, is a problem and um, and that we're not available to everyone in the community like we may think we are. Mm. So transparency is also important. Yeah, transparency with ourselves and with our community. Along that line of thinking, what about physical pressure and intensity? You talked about getting permission just to touch, but let's say you're doing some live drills or sparring or grappling or whatever. Sometimes people get very intense or like to use a lot of pressure. How do you control that? The way that we set up our classes is really designed to have our students, when they're working with their training partners, to consider that their training partner may not um, have the same physical strength or the same experience level. So what we actually do is, and we model this as we're doing the demos um, of what we want our students to work on, we say, so first start with your kick at 10% and ask, is this okay? Can I go um, higher than that? Then go up to, to 25% and ask, is this okay? And to, to slowly kind of go up in intensity, um, we say the words a lot in 
in class, build trust with your partner, because once you build trust with your partner, then you can start to really communicate with each other. Um, and you can't build trust with your partner by starting at a hundred percent and potentially hurting them. So, um, so that's kind of how we address that in classes. Yeah. I found that through all the martial arts I've ever done in my life, my favorite training partners aren't even the people I click with the most personality wise. That's kind of unconscious. And now in thinking about it, it's people where their level of intensity and the level of intensity I was giving them was just the right fit for us. So even if a school doesn't naturally create a system to make it more accessible in that way, we will naturally look for people who aren't going to hurt us and who are like, yeah, you're just at about the right spot that I like. I'm going to keep training with you. Uh-huh. Absolutely. And because of the way that our gym kind of handles all these things, it becomes really second nature to those that are um, regulars at the gym to um, A, be really available to people that are just coming in or are smaller or maybe more timid about what they're doing and to be willing to teach and be willing to hold themselves back in some ways. Um, so I think it can be just, it just can become part of the gym's atmosphere. This is how we do things. One of the things that we do say is if you are not able to put as much power into it, it's about control. If you can do something um, slowly, then you can do it smoothly. If you can do it smoothly, then you can do it fast. And so if you are going at 10%, do 10% with control, do the technique um, the way it's intended, and you'll be able to do it when you are able to put more uh, more power into it. Yeah. And especially when you systematize it like this, then instead of like me, where there's only one person in the gym I like training with, the system will create an environment where there's a lot of people I like training with. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What, one thing that we do is we have um, the new people uh, raise their hands, which I know can be <laughs> its own scary thing, but <laughs> we have people raise their hands. If, if you've been at the gym for a week or less, raise your hands. And then um, where the rest of us are instructed to go and pair up with them. So it, it creates, um, an environment where folks that are willing to do that teaching are, can step forward and they can choose to work with someone that is newer. Those that really want to go hard that day, there are days that I don't want to teach and <laughs> there are days that I want to, to go harder. So I'll pick someone that I know can go at that level because we've built trust and we know each other and we're able to do that. But um, it really helps, I think, the newer folks that there are people stepping forward, wanting to train with them and wanting to be working with them at, at the level that they came in with. So let's go into that then. Tell us more about choosing partners and especially when it comes to demonstrations. And I think this uh, can apply to not just martial arts, but whenever you're in an environment where there's training and there's a demonstration and you have to go up there and help the instructor demonstrate something, this could even be at work training, right? Mm -hmm. Then afterwards, like, who do you pair up with? Can you uh, speak to us about that? Sure. So there are folks that... Uh, in our gym that pair up with maybe their sibling or their spouse that are, that's the pairing that they're going to have for a while. So we don't force pairings when it does um, 
when we're doing the new people, having them raise their hands and having someone go to them, we keep an, an eye on the new people and we see if any of them go, Ugh, you know, there's that look on their face of, oh, I don't want to be with somebody that I don't know. Often it's really it, what we do is we have um, a more experienced person go with the pair that wants to be together so that they can help them out. But then we're not separating them from somebody that's making them comfortable. There are folks that don't want someone new putting hands on them for a lot of different really good reasons. And so um, we want them to build up to the point where they can be with other people rather than forcing them to and having them not want to come back or having them feel traumatized by the experience. And when it comes to demonstrating, we um, often want to go around and say, okay, well, let me show you on you, you know, what this is going to look like. And, <laughs> and so we, yeah, you know, <laughs> oh, you're not quite, you know, you're not quite understanding the technique. So let me show you what it's going to look like. But you know, a lot of the people that are instructors or more experienced students, if you look intimidating and scary, then someone's not necessarily going to want you to do that. So we ask again, is that okay if I if I show you or should I show on your partner or should I show on Tyler um, so that you can see what it looks like? Um, so we, we try to maintain choice in that way. And then what about if you do use them to help demonstrate and now everybody's paired up uh, and they need a partner? Is that where then the instructors might come in to help them? Yes. And we have a lot of really great people that come regularly that have instructor certifications or are at higher uh, you know, have a brown belt or whatever, and they are willing to pair up and go slow. Um, and we, we do try to be careful. Um, there are a couple people that, you know, just their practice and the way that they are is not necessarily that conducive to learning for a new person. And that's absolutely okay too. That's their level, um, and their need. And so there was someone that's experienced that, um, can work with them at their level. So then part of asking people for permission, may I demonstrate this on you or constantly asking for consent, that then creates options or uh, gives people permission also then to opt out and say, no, I don't feel comfortable with that. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah. So what we do is, uh, especially in my class, which again, is the LGBTQ specific class, and it's a little bit slower paced. It's a little more at the level that some people can handle. Um, and we, and I say in class at least once, if you need to take a break for any reason, feel free to sit and watch or step out into the lobby. You can join back in at any time or don't join back in. That's fine too. Um, I want to give people permission to listen to themselves and to not look to me for permission. They uh, are encouraged to check in with themselves and, and then do what they need to do to take care of themselves. And I think that's something that a lot of instructors don't think about is creating a space for people to be able to opt in or opt out or have a say in what they get to do that day or what they get to participate in or don't want to participate in. And I think that's on the instructor, but sometimes they don't realize it. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it doesn't always work out. Sometimes people are not quite as tuned in with themselves and they end up doing something that is um, ends up being too hard for them. I've seen that happen more than once. And it's 
you know, it's no one's fault. And, and we accept that that person maybe needs to step out for that day. We do check-ins later on. Um, if not in the moment, we do a check-in later on to see, are you doing okay? Um, is there anything that you want to talk through? You know, do you want to debrief the experience? And is there anything we could do in the future to help you feel comfortable? Then what about trauma and how that may lead someone to martial arts or to fitness in general, or even the trauma from a previous institution? What should we consider? So for self-defense or martial arts in general, people may come to us looking to empower themselves to defend themselves in the future when they've had a bad experience in the past and to feel like they have the, they have the ability that, that they have that option in the future to defend themselves. Um, I think some people come to us with baggage from other institutions, especially when they were in a self-defense specific class where they were shamed or frightened or pressured. It can look like, you know, if you don't do this, then you are going to be blank. And it's very scary. And, and I think that fear can be used as a selling point um, to keep people coming back. I don't believe that works very well. I think that when people are afraid, they end up leaving. Um, and if they do end up staying, they're never quite as open to um, learning and trusting as they would be without that technique being used. So I've heard a lot of folks coming into my self-defense classes that either experienced that kind of thing in the past or that they've avoided going to self-defense classes until they learned about um, about mine because they were afraid they were, would experience that victim blaming and pressure and fear-based teaching techniques. So the fact that we go against all of that, I think really draws people in and creates an environment where people want to stick around and people can learn. And then do you also find then uh, not just to prevent future trauma, but a lot of folks might come in having already sustained the physical violence already? Exactly. So they're looking... One of my students put it really well that he wasn't sure whether or not he'd experienced trauma in the past and he hadn't had the option to defend themselves. And he wasn't sure how he felt about um, using these skills in the future, but he wanted to give himself the option. And so I think people are looking for the option to be able to defend themselves in the future. And, you know, we always tell them you, you in the moment are the one that, that has to decide what is the right next step, but they want the option to be able to use those techniques if they need to. And I think going back to something you were talking about previously with other instructors who aren't thinking about these things is that thing about pushing people too much, that pressure, that duress is because they're assuming that the bad thing hasn't happened yet. So they're not being trauma informed, right? They're thinking, I'm doing this all for your own good to prevent this bad thing from happening. But more often than that, maybe the bad thing already happened. So then they have to come at it from that point. Because if you think nothing bad has happened yet, then maybe that makes sense for you why you're doing this to prepare them. But if you realize that you're no longer in preparation mode, you're in healing mode because this is something that has already transpired, then you would have to rethink and approach this from a completely different way. And I think actually then most of us should come at it from a completely different way, assuming that that is possible, that a lot of our students are coming to us already been traumatized. So then how do we make a training that works for everybody, not just for people who've, who've never incurred anything bad, which just tends to be a lot of cisgendered white men who are of a certain size, <laughs> right? Yes. Or 
something that can work not only for them, but for everybody else as well, especially the ones who've already suffered. Something that we've decided to do is not to talk about the specifics of different types of attacks. So we talk about if if someone is pinning you to the wall, this is how you defend against that. If someone is has knocked you to the ground, this is how you defend against that. Without saying, if someone has knocked you to the ground, these are their intentions and this is why you have to fight back. The folks that are at the gym because they want to learn self-defense, they already know what what they're looking at. We don't need to tell them, you know, and potentially cause them to um, have a flashback or to go back to that trauma because they're there for a reason. They know what they're there for. And, um, and so we don't need to be explicit about something that could be really traumatizing for someone to hear. You could just make it just matter of fact, and this is what's happening right now. You are literally having your wrist pinned to the wall. What do you do in this situation instead of explaining what the narrative is happening at that moment? Because we all know what this is supposed to represent. So we don't need to bonk people over the head with it like a Marvel movie explain the plot, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I. that's exactly it. Uh-huh. You'll see schools use very dramatic language and like we offer this type of defense, right? And it's talking about a certain type of sexual assault. And I'm like, why would you use the name of that? That doesn't invite people who've been traumatized. I don't know who that invites. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It it basically, it, it sounds good to the people that aren't often in danger of those things happening to them in the first place. Or it almost sounds belittling or it's making light of things because sometimes uh, I've seen in in self-defense classes, especially grappling oriented ones, where they'll talk about a certain choke and they'll say this is a choke named after a certain type of sexual assault. And it's like, why would you name that choke that, right? That's awful. (laughs) (laughs) So when you use a term that is so dramatic and almost sounds childish, then of course people are going to laugh and giggle. Then of course that becomes re-traumatizing for people who feel like y'all are laughing at me because I went through that and you think it's funny. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I think people think, oh, if I make this lighter, then it's going to be easier to take in when really it's the opposite and it's doing what we don't want to do, which is to treat these things like they're less serious than they are. So then what are some tips for instructors to be better teachers? I think one thing that we don't think about much is we we think about children in school having differences in how they learn, having learning disabilities. Um, Those children grow up to be adults that have the same differences in how they learn things and the same differences in how they take things in. And so keeping that in mind, we want to be able to address when someone is struggling with learning techniques. Some of those strategies are to break the techniques into smaller steps. So, uh, you know, I think that folks that are really um, knowledgeable about these things will will kind of do a one, two, three, four, five. Those are the steps to it. Now your turn, and not think about <laughs> not think about the fact that you know that's that's a lot for some people. I'm, I mean. Even I don't always um, learn something new that way. So breaking techniques down into smaller steps. A uh, tip we got from a um, an in, a educator that works in um, special education is to use landmarks instead of left and right. So to use 
you know, put your hand that's closest to the wall here, um, move your leg that's closest to the, um, to Bob, who's our, our, uh, dummy that you hit, <laughs> move your leg that's closest to Bob, um, forward, that can be helpful for some folks that have a hard time with left and right. And then there's the concept from teaching um, children of I do, we do, you do. So first I show you, then we do it together, and then it's your turn. And often I think we skip that we do part, and we just do uh, a demonstration and then kind of sink or swim. Maybe it's actually built into how physical training is done because you're not facing the same direction as the students you're facing towards them. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes, right, you'll see in, especially fitness classes, a lot of times the instructors will face the same direction as their students. So they're truly mirroring them where they're doing it the same way they are. But if you face them, then it becomes automatically confusing because it's now the other side, everything is on the other side, right? Maybe it's just a part of training people physically and we just don't realize that the cameras turned the other way now and we just assume that they'll be able to pick that up very quickly when even the teachers themselves might not be picking that up that everything is the opposite now sure yeah no i think that makes sense so landmarks in that way that makes so much more sense is because those are fixed objects uh-huh absolutely the front of the room the back of the room these are things that are not changing now, with what you mentioned earlier about flashbacks, how can we spot if someone might be having a flashback of their trauma and what should we do if we notice? So there are a lot of different signs that a flashback might be happening and it really presents differently uh, for different people. So it could be anything as as dramatic as someone's not able to respond, they are appear to be trying to run or they are trying to run. They're crying or screaming or calling for help, curled in a fetal position. It could be totally different than that, though. It could be someone's apologizing repeatedly or freezing. Um, the signs may not be readily visible, but these are the things that we look for. Um, clenched, eye, clenched eyes and fluttering eyes or wide open eyes, increased breathing, disconnection from the present so people may be saying you know things don't seem real um is something that you often hear from people that are dissociating because of a flashback so those are some of the things that you can look for and the way that we address it is uh it's kind of in steps so you speak calmly quietly and confidently you want to to kind of go to a level of calm, everything's fine, things are safe in terms of how your voice is. You ask either another volunteer or instructor in the class that's present to take over the class or to step in with the person and stay with them until they're feeling better so that you can return to teaching as the instructor. Tell the person that they're safe and that you or someone else will be with them until they're feeling better. Ask them if they want to move to a seat or to the lobby. Asking someone what would help them is really important because sometimes people know they've had flashbacks before and they know I need a drink of water or I need to go step outside. Um, it's really important when someone's having a flashback to ask before touching them. And if they are not responsive, it's okay to just kind of gently guide someone, but you want to be really aware of their reaction to that. And so you can remove your hand if you need to. The don'ts are 
don't point out what's happening to other people unless it's necessary. Don't tell them to calm down. (laughs) Don't tell them there's no reason for their behavior or that they're embarrassing themselves or overreacting. And unfortunately, those are things that can happen uh, to folks that that will express that, that that's happened to them when they've had flashbacks before. You can also help the person by breathing with them slowly, um, count to 10 while breathing, or guiding them through box breathing. So the the four breaths in, hold for four, four breaths out, hold for four. Now let's get to the meat of this episode. What is inclusion? So I think when folks think of inclusion, they think of diversity, and diversity is really just one aspect of inclusion. Diversity just means having people of different races, religions, sexual orientations, ages, genders, et cetera, at your organization. And so people sometimes will look around and say, oh, I've got three people of color and, you know, 50% women, so I'm I'm inclusive. Um, but that's just really one part of the picture. So. One thing I mentioned earlier that's a part of being inclusive is being learning-centered. So rather than expecting that we know what's needed by the community, it means acknowledging that we only know what ourselves and other people quite similar to us would need and that people that are different than us are the experts in what they need. So, you know, I don't get to decide that I know what people of color need and are organization, I need to ask them, I need to be open to hearing, I need to read things um, to find that out. I may know what transgender people who are like me um, need, but, um, and so I should be the, you know, potentially someone that's asked about that, but uh, there's a lot of things that I'm not going to know and a lot of things that we don't know as an organization. So another part of being inclusive is incorporating the needs of communities into the design and the implementation of programs. So if we're only designing our programs based on our limited understanding of what's needed and our own experiences, then we're missing out on what other communities need and limiting who can benefit from our programs. And I think we've talked about that in a few ways in terms of um, being accessible. And if you're not accessible, then you're limiting who can come and um, take part in your programs. Um, additionally, um, you can't just look at a room full of, of your participants and say, I've got a few people of color, so we're good. <laughs> people of, <laughs> of diverse backgrounds, they actually need to be at all levels of the organization. So, you know, if you have, um, you know, eight white instructors, but you have some people of color that are students, that's not inclusion. That's, um, that's not quite there yet. They should be instructors, coaches, and leaders in different ways. Um, so when we talk about this at, with um, instructors, we talk about this being a work in progress. It's not something that we um, are, we're not taking this training and being and and saying now we're an inclusive gym. It's something that we have to work on and that the, the training about, you know, modeling respect and, um, and learning about inclusion is kind of the first step on our journey. And I think that's just really important, um, is that it's a journey and that organizations never go, I've arrived, (laughs) we're inclusive. Uh, check that off the list. 
Um, our goal is to um, to take inclusive language as a starting point um, and a starting point in treating people with respect, treating with them with dignity, because if people don't feel those things, if they don't feel include, included in the group and that their dignity is valued, um, they won't want to be here. And if they do stay, they may not benefit as much because they'll be on guard. So inclusion really is is a multi-pronged um, approach to being an organization. Yeah, I think a lot of people, they use diversity and inclusivity interchangeably, thinking of saying the same thing. But you're making the point that it's not. Diversity is a part of inclusion, but inclusion is so much of a bigger project. Yes, exactly. That's, that's I think, what people often do is, is think that they're the same thing and that, and that just having a few people that are um, transgender, um, et cetera, means that they've kind of arrived where they want to be. Yeah, you see a lot of organizations or even certain political groups get into trouble because they make that mistake of thinking it's the same thing that, oh, we're diverse, so it must be inclusive. And it's so much bigger than that and probably a little bit more difficult than that. It's very difficult, yes. And I and I think as soon as we think that this is easy and we've got it, we've immediately failed at being inclusive because it's not. It's not ever going to be easy and it's a constant process. So if it feels easy, then you're probably not putting in enough effort. And that's why it's easy. <laughs> you're not doing it right. <laughs> so something I find even well-intended people miss is intersecting identities. Can you break this down for us? Yeah, so an individual's identity consists of multiple factors. So it involves their gender, their race, ethnicity, class, sexual orientation, their their gender identity. Um, those different factors don't exist in a vacuum. And when different um, aspects of someone's identity are um are parts of marginalized groups, the intersection of those identities can really increase someone's vulnerability tremendously. So someone who is, um, for example, trans um, Black women are um, of the trans community the most marginalized in many ways because of the intersection of being women uh, who are already seen and treated as less than men, they're black, so less than white, and they're transgender, so their um, gender identity is seen as less um, accepted. And you see that in the statistics about how, um, how they're treated in society. So you can be white and a woman or white and a trans person and still have white privilege. That's exactly right. So uh, transgender men have have male privilege um, and uh, white transgender folks definitely ha still have that white privilege. And it doesn't mean that they don't have trouble by virtue of being trans, but they don't have trouble by virtue of being white. Now, tell us about the nature of dehumanization. Um, the, the saying sticks and stones may break by my bones, but words will never hurt me is not really accurate. 
it's really <laughs> nice to think that <laughs> that it is. Um, I think that we hear that most from folks that are not the ones being hurt <laughs> by the words. Um, words can contribute to dehumanization and being dehumanized makes it more acceptable for someone to hurt someone else physically. So it, for example, when we talk about degrading women through misogynistic jokes or catcalling, we're actually talking about literally dragging women down in the hierarchy of living things, at, at least in the hierarchy of humanity. And so stereotyping and bigoted language can make someone less human to us. So if as an institution, our gym is against bias-related violence, which I think many of our gyms would say that they are, then it needs to be against bias-related language as well. A big part of why I feel this training that I do is important is that it's not just about not offending people. And I think that's what people think, oh, I'm, I'm going to this training to learn how to not offend people. But it's about how our words possibly have a domino effect. Um, so we say something that ends up being dehumanizing. A student hears it and repeats that phrase because we're authority figures and we used it. And someone else hears it and has... Um, feels like they have more motivation or reason to to physically harm somebody because it confirms their beliefs and then they go out and cause physical harm. So it's all interconnected. So dehumanizing then is talking about somebody in a way where they're no longer a human, they're a thing. And even if you're just using words or even joking around, not only in and of itself is that malicious, but it could create an environment for more physically malicious things to happen because it becomes normalized. Because, hey, I thought none of us were thinking of this person as a person. We were just thinking of them as a thing. Mm -hmm. And we do that totally without realizing that we're doing it. And, you know, the intent is, I think many people who make that type of joke would never even think about actually physically harming somebody for the characteristic that they were joking about. But that doesn't mean that the person listening to the joke isn't going to go out and do that. Yeah, I did an episode in the past about conspiracy theories. And what the guest was saying was that sometimes there are funny and what seems like benign conspiracy theories. But his point was that even those create an environment for the more malicious, the racist, the anti-Semitic, the misogynistic conspiracies to flourish. And on top of that, the person who might be even saying benign ones more often than that, that's not the only conspiracy they're going to believe. That's just the one they feel comfortable sharing in public. And that in itself becomes a gateway for some of the more malicious ones, or maybe the underpinning thing of the seemingly benign conspiracy is actually a very malicious, oppressive conspiracy. So I think in the same way with dehumanizing language, you might come at it like it's a joke or it's just normal, but not only can it create more harmful things, but What's ultimately underlying it is this belief that this person that you're talking about is less than you, is less than other. Yeah, agreed. So then going into that, what about unconscious bias? Because you've already mentioned that. So we all judge things constantly on a minute-to-minute -minute basis based on our past experiences or what we've been taught. And it's really important that we're able to judge things um, kind of instantly without consciousness, because if we didn't, then we'd be paralyzed by having to make a judgment about literally each and everything we come into contact with individually. So, you know, we see a dog and we 
either assume that that dog's going to be um, awesome to pet and and we love dogs, or we assume that dog's going to hurt us based on our past experiences, and um, we don't necessarily feel that we need to meet every single dog to pass that kind of judgment on them. So I teach unconscious bias as something that we shouldn't be ashamed of, but just something that we need to be aware of. In fact, unconscious bias is often not in sync with our conscious values. It, um, it starts from very young and it can very much go against, you know, our feeling, well, I'm not racist, I'm not sexist, et cetera. And yet that bias, um, is still there. So the, when bias becomes dangerous is when it's based on stereotypes about people and causes us to treat them differently without reason. Um, there's a lot of studies out there about and good information about implicit or unconscious bias out there. But again, the the goal is to be aware that we could have it and to be able to examine it when it comes up and take steps to be aware of and change our behavior in response to realizing that we have an inc- incorrect belief or an incorrect association. I like the point that you're making that we shouldn't be ashamed of it because if we are, then we might deny that we have any unconscious biases, right? Which is impossible. Yeah, that I really think it's important to teach that it's a natural thing that we do and really important, <laughs> you know, for us to be able to function um, so that folks don't feel defensive about it. And I think it's one way that we teach people to not feel defensive um, so that they're open to be able, being able to learn about where they could have some biases. I mean, ultimately, unconscious biases are shortcuts, but like shortcuts, they can sometimes short circuit and not work right. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it goes well. And sometimes it completely goes against our values. And that's just the nature of shortcuts. Sometimes <laughs> I literally take a shortcut on the road, believing it'll be faster and it actually doubles my time. Sometimes they don't work the way they're supposed to. Uh-huh. Yeah, I like that idea of them being like shortcuts. Now, how can we model respect for those who are different than we are through our words and actions? So I think that one thing that is expected when I teach this training is that I'm going to go into a list of things that you shouldn't say, words that shouldn't be said, phrases that shouldn't be said. And that's really not the approach that I take with it. Um, I What I teach is that it's about changing some habits that are deeply embedded in what we do and considering the implications of words and phrases that we may think are are more benign that aren't and to be empathetic to those who experience whose experiences we may not share or we may not understand the question that i pose to the group isn't why are we suddenly not allowed to say all these things but why was it ever acceptable for us to say them. I think it's really common for folks to say, well, now you can't say anything because you might offend someone and and reframing it to, okay, but why were we ever able to say things that were offensive and were dehumanizing about people, um, I think can make people go, oh, huh, that's, that's a different way to look at it. Um, we talk about what slurs are uh, and and what the difference is between a slur and cursing. Again, I think people hear, well, I'm not allowed to use slurs anymore. So, you know, I can't even say, you know, the F word or this or that. Well, that's not what slurs are in the way that I teach it. 
Um, slurs are derogatory terms that target individuals or groups um, on the basis of race or religion, et cetera. Um, and so we're not talking about you not being able to express yourself. We're talking about you be, you expressing yourself in a way that doesn't harm other people. Um, I think modeling respect is about pronouns. It's not, it's about not using men and women or he or she, and instead using people or they, when you're talking about folks so that you're inclusive of people that are not binary, avoiding assumptions about a sexual orientation, disability status, gender identity, gender roles, et cetera. Um, that's a big part of how we can model respect and, and be aware of those that are different than us. Um, I talk about tone policing, which is when we police what someone's feedback is to us based on them sounding angry or upset um, or the wording that they use to do it. So I talk about, and that's, again, that's um, us having the onus to control our feelings when we're getting feedback and not go, well, if you if you were just less angry about it or if you sounded more, um, more educated about it, then I would be able to hear you better. Um, is something that I think we need to avoid when we're looking at modeling respect. And one thing that I also talk about is coded language, which um, coded language are terms that hide bias. So for example, the word thugs or, you know, talking about the hood. Um, animals. Animals, when you're talking about people, illegal aliens, you know, these are some of the the terms that we use that that don't on the outside look like they are biased, but they're coded to um, be about race or um, nation of origin, et cetera. So we avoid those in, in class. And if we're talking about you're coming up on a group of people that look, you know, look like they could be trouble that we don't say you come at, you're coming up on a group of thugs, <laughs> you know, you use different terms than that. I think another aspect of modeling respect is modeling being able to gracefully accept and give feedback to each other so that we can grow together as a community. And and teaching how to call someone in is a skill that a lot of people don't um, haven't learned. It's not taught in schools or anything like that. So, um, so those are just some of the aspects of it, but it's really all about awareness and thinking about who's my audience, who am I talking to, who am I talking about and how am I talking about them? Something you mentioned earlier about using the F bomb. I hate it when people do that kind of bait and switch where they bring up an example that we'd all agree, like, yeah, you should be able to say the word fuck in the right environment, in the right situation. So that's very defensible that we could all agree on. And then use that as a way to talk about your disdain for pronouns or other things, right? Yeah, that's super frustrating. So for people who don't understand what I'm saying, there's a logic fallacy called Mod and Bailey, where I take something that we'd all agree on, we'd all defend, and then use that to attack something else that we'd all would not agree on and be like, that is not worth attacking. And that happens all the time. People might not even know what that tactic is actually called. You just learn how to do it as a kid growing up because you learn how to be manipulative and everybody can be manipulative. So some people naturally do that. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, going back to what you were saying earlier about thinking about, well, how did we ever get to say these things or be so rude or offensive or oppressive? The example I like to give is with slavery here in the U.S. People often will even say like, well, people back then didn't know that slavery was wrong. And it's like the slaves knew it was wrong, right? Are they not people? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So a lot of this, I kind of feel like is just trying to be more precise. Thinking of it as a martial artist, there's like hundreds of different types of kicks. You don't want to call each one of them a roundhouse. They all are something different. And so now we're just trying to be more precise. It's not even like this politically correct thing. It's more precise language. And the people who are so-called so rational and so scientific are the ones who are opposing the most precision in language. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, it's very interesting how that works. (laughs) So what are some other things we should consider so we can keep growing even beyond the things you've presented? I think it's really dependent on your gym and your membership's needs. Um, but among the things we should consider is, is our gym and are our classes accessible? Are we including the right people in decision-making, the people that actually represent our community? Are we allowing for and actively asking for feedback? So not just um, being open to feedback, but actually saying, you know, please let us know if you hear anything that you are concerned about. Please let us know so that we can do something differently and and um, make sure that everyone feels safe and comfortable here. Um, are we open for continually learning and never really arriving at a final destination? Are the things that I say consistent with my values and with the gym's values and intentions? Who's my audience? So in terms of what we should consider and how we can keep growing, I highly recommend that gym staff for the particular gym brainstorm together what they can do programmatically and what they can do as individuals and how they can support each other as a group to better meet the needs of the people that need the training the most. All right. Well, I'll put an outline of everything we discussed in the show notes. Okay. Where can people find more about Rainbow Connection Self-Defense? I love the name, by the way, but where can they find more information about this on the internet? So you can search for Rainbow Connection on Facebook by just searching Rainbow Connection Self-Defense. And that's an open group that folks can join. Um, really happy to have folks on there. Um I'm also happy to answer questions by email. And my email is tylerzen at gmail.com, T-Y-L-A-R-Z-I-N-N at gmail.com. All right. Well, thank you so much, Tyler. You're welcome. Thank you. This has been great. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content and along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. 
This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye.